Well, good morning, everybody. So uh, on the tables, what I just passed out, uh, we don't do this very often, but that's your homework. Okay. So next week, we're going to finish up Exodus. And most of you could probably, if Dad has done his job properly, uh, could, could answer all those questions right now. But uh, that's going to be um, our focus next week. Uh, as we wrap up Exodus. So basically, what have we learned? And um, uh, so this is uh, homework and and final quiz all at the same time. So today we're going to be uh, in Exodus 34. Uh, Dad left off around uh, verse 9 last week. Uh, We're going to go through the end of 34. And then, as Dad said, there's a a fair amount of uh, repetition. Uh, We're going to skip over most everything and wrap up and do Exodus 40 uh, next week. Uh, so we're going to be in Exodus 34 today, and then we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Okay, so you can go ahead and get ready for that. Now, if you want to work on your homework, uh, just reread Exodus, parts of Genesis, most of Genesis. Um, or, if you want the cliff note version, you can get pretty close reading Nehemiah chapter 9. Uh, if, you want, if you want just the, the short version, because uh, in that chapter, uh, it's a pretty good synopsis of everything we've covered. And uh, so if you want the, the short version, you can do that. All right, so Exodus chapter 34. For those of you that weren't here, uh, a lot happened in chapter 32. Paraphrasing Aaron, we threw all this stuff in there and this calf came out. Uh, paraphrasing Moses, uh, you sinned a great sin. Moses makes intercession for the people and that was the focus um, last week in verse 6 of chapter 34 it says the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord the Lord a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity. We've talked about that before. And Moses says, basically, if I've found favor in your sight, pardon our iniquity and sin. Take us for your inheritance. Verse 10. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you whom you are I'm sorry, and all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do for you. I won't read all of this, but it says I will drive you out before the Amorites. In other words, he's recapitulating the vision 
for taking the promised land. And several times we've seen where he's promised to go before them and to, uh, to uh, allow them to acquire these peoples. Remember he had said, um, you know, he was going to do it kind of in a methodical fashion so that they could take over this land and, uh, and own it for themselves. Uh, in verse uh, 17, well, I guess um, in that whole paragraph from 11 through 17, again, the reminder, um, you're going to have to bring down the idols of the pagan peoples um, that you conquer, uh, lest it be a temptation for yourself. Verse 17, you shall not make for yourself any gods cast of cast metal. Uh, no big mystery why he felt the need to remind them of that. Uh, perhaps they didn't get it the first, the second, or, or third time. A uh, reminder of you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. And uh, verse 19, all that open the womb are mine. Again, retelling these commands that they've already done. Verse 21, we hear about the Sabbath. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, and so forth. Uh, verse 23, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord. So there's some accountability there. I will cast out nations, verse 34, before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go to appear before the Lord, your God, three times in the year. Verse 27, and the Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. All right. So that's review. Um, and the takeaway is, once again, God is showing his faithfulness. In spite of this grievous sin that they had committed, in spite of them not just disobeying a commandment but when you cast everything and you tell Aaron we want a God go make us one that's a clear rejection of the God that brought you out of Egypt that brought you across the Red Sea that honored you by giving you the law that has given you the plans for the tabernacle wherein he wants to meet you there it was an ultimate rejection, but God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Fresh start. So let's look at verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near. He commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when he had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Moses didn't know that his face looked different. Now this is in contrast to our president who says that artificial light bulbs make his face look orange. 
I've seen people who come from the beach who know that their face looks different because it is really, really red. Or the occasional person who didn't quite read the directions in the shower when they put on some sort of self-tanning uh, stuff, and that can go wrong very quickly. So um, beauty may only be skin deep, but uh, our skin says something about us, and in this case, it said something about Moses, and uh, this was no artificial light. This was the echo, you might say, or the the imprint uh, of the glory of God on Moses' face. And um, the first response to these people was to uh, be afraid. They were afraid to come near him. But Moses gathers them together. He commands them all that the Lord had spoken. Now, that probably took a minute, right? Because God had been saying a lot. They're 40 days and 40 nights worth. Verse 34, when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. When he came out, he told the people of Israel what was commanded, and the people would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, why did Moses' face shine? We just said that. What? He had been in the presence of the Lord. This was, what's the, what's the word that people uh, use to describe this? Shekinah glory. You guys have been in Sunday school before. This is not new. So his face was glowing. And why did he put it on the veil? Because he was embarrassed. <laughs> you know, I made a list of possibilities, Gwen, that did not show up on my list. <laughs> But I, I'm all about fresh perspectives and audience participation. Why do you put on the veil? To help people be comfortable Okay. So people might be comfortable about him. That kind of makes sense. A distraction, okay. He didn't want to outshine God. Okay. He didn't want to outshine God. That was not on my list either. <laughs> All right, so why did he take off the veil? He needed a recharge, right? So the, the answer as to why he put on the veil isn't explicit in our text here, but we have a rather compelling explanation if we go to 2 Corinthians 3. All right? So let's go to 2 Corinthians 3. So what's going on with 2 Corinthians? Well, 1 Corinthians, we learn a lot, right? This is a, a, a metropolitan church, uh, no stranger to uh, uh, all of uh, today's um, uh, sins and temptations. Um, it, it might have been as bad as some of our modern-day cities. Who knows? Second Corinthians, Paul's writing them back. A lot's happened, presumably. There's more than a little speculation as to the context, uh, rather the context of um, 
2 Corinthians. But you get a glimpse of his argument in verse 1. It says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? So, you know, Paul was no stranger to sarcasm or to a little poke every so often. And he's writing them because in the, in the interim, apparently, uh, he's gotten word that, um, you know, people have kind of strayed a little bit. Uh, they've lost focus, and he's going to, to call them to, to refocus on, on the gospel. Uh, and so, in essence, he's saying, do I need to reestablish my credentials with you? Uh, the, the answer to that rhetorical question is, I really shouldn't have to do that. Um, but that's where he's heading. He gives a hint of where he's going with this little uh, argument in verse 3. I guess it's better just to pick up with two. You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. In other words, you should be able to testify yourself as to my authority. In verse 3, and you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. In other words, you know, Christ has made a difference in your lives. That should be evidence of the change that has happened because of the gospel that I was able to teach you about. And now we hear about this spirit of the living God, or this, this message rather, written not on tablets of stone, but tablets of human hearts. So what are the tablets? So now he's throwing the focus back to Exodus. Verse 4, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, made us competent to be ministers, not of the letter of the Spirit, This is where it gets interesting. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's a kind of a dramatic turn there. Verse 7, now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So now we are smack dab in the middle of Exodus 34, right? So, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, what is that? This ministry of death? That doesn't sound like a kind thing to say about the Ten Commandments, does it? The ministry of death. Why does Paul call this these things that we are begging to be posted in various places, some would argue ill-advisedly, but why does Paul call these Ten Commandments the ministry of death? We can't abide by them. We're sinful. We can't abide by them. We're sinful. If we hang our hats on that, then we don't focus on 
you could argue there were many purposes for why God gave the law. But ultimately, what does the law do? It shows you where you're sinful. It shows us we're sinners. It makes you aware of your sin, of what sin is to begin with. So the ministry of death. What could the law do for you? It could convict you in a legal sense. sense. Oh, here's the law. Oh, I feel so much better now. (laughs) No, no, it's, it really, I mean, it, it again sounds pretty dramatic and it's there to make a point. The ministry of death carved in letters on stone. But in spite of that, it says, came with such glory what Paul is calling the ministry of death he acknowledges was so infused with the glory of God that Moses face shone as a result of the process of receiving those tablets so this is the classic argument that was popular of the day where you take a smaller example and you use that to argue how much greater is this other example (coughs) right so if these tablets which this side of the resurrection we now see as a ministry of death had so much glory that Moses face shown here's his big point verse 8 will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory right At this time, there was still a temple, right? There were still sacrifices happening in Jerusalem. The altars were still running with blood. As we've hinted at, the sacrificial system was a messy business. Right? animals literally being killed right and left, guts being thrown up and consumed. I mean, it was a messy business. That was still happening. And Paul is calling them to a better way. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Verse 9. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? If you read it real quickly, it kind of sounds like double talk. But if you break it down, you can follow the argument Basically, Paul's saying, look, y'all, you had something that was glorious at the time. One of the things that probably the typical Jew could have been most proud of was that they were honored to be the people that received the law. And, and rightly so. But Paul's saying those days are gone. 
the car we drive is looks like a decent car. It is a 2007. It's held up really well. It's done well for us. We're we're not the trade them in and get a new shiny one family. We're pretty much a drive them till they drop sort of family. Um, the car I'm driving is 11 years old and is a, a testament to um, the cash for clunkers uh, thing. Um, before that, uh, my ride was a very fancy uh, conversion van. Uh, <laughs> I've got pictures if you want to see. <laughs> Things fade. Uh, the law had done its thing, had lived its usefulness. Paul's saying, there's a, there's a better, there's something better. There's something better. There was glory for the moment with the law, but there's something better. So now it gets back to Moses, verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Did you get that? So Paul says that the reason that Moses put the veil on was so the Israelites wouldn't see it, the glory that it was hiding start to fade. So he goes in to meet with God. He lifts the veil, gets his recharge, goes out, talks to the people, showing, I guess, he's still got the authority. Okay. But then he puts the veil down until whenever the next appointed time is to go get recharged again because between now and then it's going to fade. As glorious as it was, even in that moment, even contemporaneous with it, Moses knew, you know, this isn't lasting. <laughs> what, what do I, it's kind of, I don't know. It's kind of Wizard of Oz's, right? You know, the, the man behind the curtain, you know. Um, I'm not saying that was sinful, but, you know, uh, maybe it was just a leadership technique, you know, fake it till you make it sort of thing. Uh, uh, certainly, um, uh, it, w it was interesting, at least. It was interesting to Paul. Uh, verse 14, it says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ has it taken away. So he makes a really cool turn here, right? So before, we've got Moses with the veil, giving the people the assumption that things are as bright as they ever were when Moses knows that things are fading. Now the veil 
isn't over Moses. Now the veil is over people who are clinging to the old covenant. So the veil that was designed to hide the glory of God is what? Hiding the glory of God. It's keeping them from seeing the new, the better, the gospel. He says, only through Christ is it taken away. Verse 15, yet to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What are some things that serve as a veil to people today? What keeps people from seeing the gospel? Their own intelligence. Good works shielding them from a true view of whether they need God or not. Sometimes it can be the self-righteous attitude of Christians. Elaborate on that. She says sometimes it's a selfish... I'm sorry, the self-righteous appearance of Christians. In other words, sometimes some people come into church and they're dressed differently and maybe tattoos all over and piercings and whatever. And as self-righteous Christians, sometimes we look at those folks and assume that there's something wrong with them. And that attitude can be a real turn-off to them not wanting to ever come back because they're not so our opinion perhaps subtly expressed maybe not so subtly expressed could be seen as a, a veil to them to seeing the gospel so when they look at us they don't see the gospel they see judgment condemnation remind me not to call on you uh, to <laughs> Yeah, a little, little, yeah, a little, see, you know, when you get convicted, you know, uh, Dad says what? Some traditions. Some traditions. You got one in mind? No. <laughs> you got one? When, you're, when you don't grow up in church, especially when you're a young teen and you're searching for God or something, you don't really know what you're searching for. And you go into church, and you're immediately told, Jesus loves you like your father does. And if you don't have a father that loves you, it's like, that may not why make do sense. I need this? So, Tradition. certainly circumstances of various sorts and kinds can get in the way, right? I mean, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, life can be really hard sometimes. And if you're just not feeling God's loving you right now, that 
could be a problem. What serves as a veil? Pride. Okay. So the veil for the people that Paul was writing to was the old covenant, right? At least that's his point here. The veil for the people that are around us, it's probably not that. It's probably all these other things that you've talked about. But it's still anything that's going to keep them from seeing the gospel. And as far as church folks are concerned, what's, what's the most classic uh, insult slash excuse that people have? Where they're just a bunch of... Right? To which we all would say... Yep. I mean, the, the secret is, of course, Christians still need Jesus, right? In fact... I think this is chasing a rabbit, but if you ever are in a discussion or maybe even thinking about other religions, I think Christianity is the only one that tells the truth about people. It's the only one that says you're not good enough to do it. You can't self-improve, self-reflect, meditate, work hard or do anything else that's going to make you closer to Jesus. No matter all your efforts, you can't be your own God, you can't be your own Savior. Only Christianity says you need so much help. You are literally helpless, right? So, you know, when they say, yeah, you're a bunch of hypocrites, you say, absolutely, most every day. But by God's grace, you know, I'm working on it. Let's see. Uh, let's see, verse 15. Yet to, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? <sighs> Freedom. And we all will, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. When that barrier between us and Christ is removed, we think about the veil that was torn, right? When we are exposed to the gospel and to the transformative work of Jesus for us, then God can start to work on us, right? Then we start to get a taste of that. And, of course, we're in this now-not-yet world, right? We've talked about that. You know, from God's perspective, are we seen as righteous? Yeah. The answer is yes, right? Uh, are we perfect? No. Not yet right so the, there's we're seen as perfect from a as a legal point of view but we're not there yet we still need to come to Jesus we still need to um, remind ourselves of these fake things that are out there 
All right, well, I, th I think you guys have done a wonderful job teaching the lesson today, uh, as you usually do. Uh, any final comments? We'll probably wrap up here in a second. Yes? So for those of you who didn't hear, and I think I'll get, probably won't say it quite as well as you did, but that one of the things that can be a veil to people is when we don't walk in the freedom that we have. Um, to turn it the other way, if hypocrisy is a turnoff, showing people real Jesus is the ultimate turn on, right? And, you know, Hopefully, our church can eventually be filled full of people who maybe don't look like us or dress like us because those are pretty much the type of people that Jesus hung out with, which we'll see in Matthew, right? All right, anything else? I have to put in a plug for Jesse. She's going to be a speaker at our next luncheon. Yes. We're all about announcements. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you.